Atena Koto Katoa, greetings everyone. Hare mai and welcome to the Learns Tuhura Ahu Ahu virtual field trip. Just before we get started, we'll begin with a karakia. Unahia te pō, te pō pirimārama. Tonga ke te ao, te ao, patitanga. Tātai ki runga, tātai ki rāro, tātai aho. Unie, unie, tai so I'm Andrew, the Learns Field Trip Teacher, and it's just gone 9.15 a.m. on Tuesday, the 30th of July. This is our first field trip web conference, and uh, you can follow the written questions for this first formal part of the web conference on the web conferences page on the website. And Barry, will they be also in the chat area? Yes. So you can follow them in the Zoom platform chat area as well. Now, we've got two experts joining us this morning. We've got uh, Louise from Auckland Museum. Louise is an archaeologist, and you can find out more about Louise and her role uh, on her profile page on the website. And coming in at short notice is James from the Department of Conservation. Uh, James works in the marine side of things, generally for Doc down here in Fitianga. And, uh, and James will be answering questions related to conservation this morning and also taking us through a biosecurity check before we get on board the boat to head over to Ahu Ahu Great Mercury Island this afternoon. Now, we've also got some friends with us. Uh, we've got Eddie the Field, that's the Learns Ambassador there. And we've got Fantasia. Fantasia is from Frankton School. And... We've got Hippie, Hippie from Waipipi. Now, Alfred, the uh, ambassador for Mercury Bay Area School, is going to be joining us as well. Um, we're picking him up today because we're going to visit Mercury Bay Area School this morning to talk with some of the students about uh, some work they've been doing related to Ahu Ahu Great Mercury. And we're actually sitting in the motel that we... Um, that we stayed in last night uh, in Fitianga. So we flew down from Kirikiri yesterday to Auckland, picked up a car, drove to Fitianga, and um, overnight here. So tomorrow, uh, so for today, our boat ride to the island. And it's quite a nice day outside, some sunshine, fairly still. So it should be a good boat ride over to the island. Looking forward to it. Um, so welcome to our speaking school, Mercury Bay Area School, just up the road from us. Great that you can join us. We're going to um, get underway with your questions. And of course, welcome to our listening schools. Great to have you with us. There'll be an opportunity at the end to post some extra questions after Mercury Bay Area Schools ask theirs. So just a reminder, Mercury Bay, uh, introduce yourself with your first name so we know who it is we're speaking with. Nice and close to the laptop or whatever it is that you're using so that we can hear your question clearly. So let's have question number one, please. Okay. Hi, it's Piper, and today I'm going to ask you my first question. Why did people decide to do archaeology on Ahu Ahu in the first place? Thanks, Piper. Morana, Piper. Um, I've been doing archaeology on Ahu Ahu for um, quite a few years now, and the uh, opportunity arose about eight years ago to get involved with the University of Auckland archaeologists to do a, um, a program of work out on the island. 
there had been um, some erosion in 2008 on one of the beaches and along the, the length of the beach was exposed shellmarin and charcoal, um, which is evidence of past Māori occupation. And Sir Michael Fay, the landowner, um, was there at the time and he became really interested. And, um, and so this joint program of work between the museum and the university has eventuated. We go out there three times a year um, and do some excavations. And as I say, we've been going out there for eight years and we'll continue to go for a few more years yet. Thanks, Louise. So that pretty much came about because of, because of the appearance of that midden from the erosion. Yes, from the erosion. But was it known before that, you know, this was a site of early occupation? Was the evidence of this already known? Um, well, uh, there's Māori occupation evidence all around the coast of Aotearoa. And, um, and, and I have worked on the island before, as have other people. And one of the very first archaeological excavations in New Zealand um, took place on the island in 1954. Um, when the first archaeologist, um, Jack Goldson, um, an Englishman, came to set up archaeology in the department at the University of Auckland, and he was looking for somewhere to, to explore and to understand something about the Māori past. Um, and he chose Ahuahu, um, which was pretty isolated from Auckland in the 1950s. And he came out and did an excavation on Matakoro, which mm. is a pa in the centre of the island. Oh, interesting. Mm. Hey, thanks very much for that, Piper. Good one to get us started with. And want to have your second question now, please, Mercury Bay. Hi, it's Piper again. And my second question for you today is, how will Ahu Ahu being pest-free affect people and the environment on the mainland? Hi Piper. Um, having great mercury pest-free will work uh, two ways basically, affecting the environment. Um, having the island being a secure little location, it'll allow the ecosystem to function properly so uh, all the bush and um, seeds and fruit there can all fall and it won't be predated on by any rats or pests. And that'll allow all the native species that we know and love to um, repopulate the area and interact in a natural way which is awesome for those island locations that hopefully we can then uh, potentially bring some of those populations back to the mainland and then have them um, here in town. Otherwise, how it will affect people, uh, it's all about education really. So a couple of years ago, Great Mercury Island went pest free from rats, mice and cats. And now just spreading that word around people are starting to understand what conservation actually is and how it benefits the islands and how it'll benefit the mainland later on so a lot of you guys being aware to this conservation at such a such an age it's very beneficial and i'm sure you might know a lot more than your parents will absolutely yeah i sort of get a feeling that young children are so much more aware these days of of conservation to see that sort of thing in action even if it's on an isolated island, like you say, James, you can bring those messages back and, and learnings back to the mainland. So, so you guys can sink your teeth into your own conservation projects. Thanks very much again, Piper. We'll move on to question number three, please. 
Are there any other threats or invasive insects affecting Great Mercury Island? And if so, what are they? So we just missed your first name. Oh, Sam. Thanks, Sam. Morning, Sam. Um, the main insect pests that we have on uh, GMI today that we know about are the Argentine ants that you may be aware about, and also four species of wasps. So wasps that we have are the common wasp, German wasp, Australian wasp, and Asian wasp. Um, wasps can be quite nasty out there because they will compete with um, any resources that all the other native insects go for. So basically, some of the wasps can, in the right numbers, take over a freshly born chick of any bird species and can actually get into that, which is a isn't very helpful for the island to reproduce. Otherwise, the Argentine ants, um, they're competing for a lot of resources and space with all of the native ants we have, and they're very good at dominating our New Zealand ants, which is why we've got an eradication program going on over the summer months. We were hopefully trying to get rid of them because they're, they're very abundant in the northern part of the island, and hopefully we can get rid of them in the next few years. What, what? So apart from overtaking the native ants, what else do they do? They strip the, the ecosystem and habitat of Great Mercury Island of its resources that um, basically provide food for any other native species on the island. And once they've dealt to an area, they'll leave nothing behind basically and sense of resources and move on to the next. And um, it's just a spread that we've got to try and stop. And are they from Argentina? Yeah, originally from Argentina and they've spread around the world because they're so successful at uh, taking over habitats. And we've got them on the New Zealand mainland now and on certain islands. Mm. They're getting good at rugby too, the Argentinians. Hey, um, thanks Sam. We'll move on to question number four, please. Number four. When an interesting artifact is found on Ahuahu or anywhere, what process do archaeologists do follow? Um, morning, huh? <coughs> um, <coughs> um, any artifacts uh, like stone tools or fish hooks um, don't, once they're found, they don't belong to the landowner. Um, they belong to what we call the Crown, which is um, a higher level than, than government as owner. And then um, under the Protected Objects Act, it'll register those objects and they, they are given an individual unique number, which is prefaced by a Z. And um, the Ministry of Culture and Heritage puts an advertisement in the newspaper asking for um, tr traditional owners to come forward and to lay claim to those objects. And traditional owners would be, um, say, the, the mana whenua of, of the area or a hapu that relates to um, that particular place where the object was found. And then the um, judge of the Māori Land Court makes the ultimate decision on who is going to be the owner. 
So in Auckland Museum, a job that um, I have is, is to actually register those objects and act as an agent for the Ministry of Culture and Heritage. And then when we get the order, court order from the judge, we then hand those objects over to the traditional owners who become the new legal owners of the objects. But quite a process. Yes, yes it is. So if you find anything on the beach or um, uh, anywhere on, on um, in a development area or something, the best thing is to contact um, the Auckland Museum and um, we can register them and then it goes through that whole process. So this actually relates, and I don't know if you can add any more information to the next question. So can you ask question number five, Mercury Bay, please? Hi, my name's Adarian, and I think you already answered my first question. But um, what scientific process do, you, do the artifacts go through? Um, well, they go through lots of different processes, um, depending on what they are. For stone material, for instance, we might use um, XRF, to, which, which can chemically identify um, the stone material that the object is made from. And if you think about um, obsidian or volcanic glass, each source in New Zealand has got a unique chemical fingerprint, I guess you could say, or signature. And um, after having found all source material and having baseline information about those, we can actually say that a particular obsidian flake comes from one of those source areas. And the same thing can happen with uh, the basalts that EDSAs are made from. It's a bit more difficult to do it with grey wacky because there's grey wacky everywhere around the coast of New uh, throughout New Zealand. And it's a kind of the basement geology of New Zealand. So it's very difficult to, um, to actually get that fingerprint of grey wacky. But, you know, you can do it for some stone materials. Okay, thanks, Louise. Now, <coughs> my question five is different to the one you just asked. So um, we'll see. We'll see how we go. Are, are you guys reading the questions? Uh, Mercury Bay. It should be fine to ask question six because I see uh, Adaria. You just changed question five because it had already been answered. So that's right. So question six is fine. Uh, hi, it's Adaria again, and I'm going to ask you my second question. What inspired you to want to be an archaeologist? Andrew, you're muted. Just trying to unmute you. Sorry, guys. We we just cut out for a little while there. You can you hear us okay now? Yep. Give us a thumbs up, everybody. Cool. Can I hear it? Okay. Uh, okay. So that's a <coughs> that's a bit of a tricky one. 
Um, if we go right back to when I was at school, I was interested in marine biology and also um, botany and the natural sciences, I guess. And when I got to university, um, I pursued those, those subjects um, through zoology and botany. And then a friend suggested that um, I do anthropology, which was because she really enjoyed it. So I sat in on one of those classes and was absolutely hooked. And um, from there, I was into being an archaeologist. And archaeology allows me to interpret what people do, but also I have to know quite a lot about the natural environment and how people used it in the past. So I get to um, pursue, um, continue to pursue my interests in marine biology and the seashore and botany and geology and all sorts of things. So if you're a bit of a generalist and you like everything and you can't really decide what you want to do, I can recommend archaeology. Yeah, yeah that's, it makes sense because if you find... Uh, bones from fish, for example, or you find, you know, uh, old plant material or you know, fossilised plant mm. material, then you've got to know about those <coughs> those plants, those fish species. And, yeah. we, and the habitats they lived in, mm. um, because that tells you about what kind of habitats um, uh, people were exploiting, uh, whether it was the rocky shore or... Um, when snapper come in to spawn, and so there's going to be a lot of snapper in the in the harbour or close into shore um, to be caught on the fish hooks. So you you learn an awful lot, um, and then apply that to what you um, how you're interpreting when people live there and how they live there. Mm. Fascinating field of study. Okay, Mercury Bay Area School, up to question seven, please. I am Eliza. Are there any specific rules or regulations to follow on the island to keep it pest-free? Morning, Eliza. Um, yeah, so before we even get to the island, we've got to go through a biosecurity process that we might see later on today, where that basically involves anyone wanting to go to the island, preferably uh, comes through the Department of Conservation office where we have the biosecurity room. And what we do there is, go through all the equipment that you're going to take to the island, all your clothes and everything, food, and pick through it with a comb and um, get out any seeds, any unwanted organic material, any spiders or any other insects that you might find crawling around your bag. Also mice, that can be a big one that um, you might not know is in your backpack. Otherwise, we just make sure it's all clean, washed, so there's no soil going out as well that can spread diseases. And once you're all checked, good to go, then you can jump on the um, on a vessel or aeroplane and get out to the island. These boats and aeroplanes have to also be checked, and we run our surveillance dogs through these vessels. So we make sure that the dogs can run around, smell if there's any signs of mice, rats, or any other pests. And once they've got the go-ahead, then you get on the island. And while you're on the island, um, there's a lot of focus on... Well, there's actually a ranger who lives on the island and he does a lot of rat traps. He's got about 300 out on the island. So he'll be checking them every um, few weeks, making sure that there's been no incursions or no uh, rats or mice come on the island. Also, in regards to insects and whatnot, pests, those kind, they 
they're very strict on soil movement, so they don't spread soil from one end of the island to the other because they could potentially move um, a whole lot of Argentine ants down to one end and infect another part of the island. And also, in regards to weeds and whatnot, there's a lot of spraying and Doc likes to put a few weeks of commitment out on the island and we, we walk through the bush and all the natives and try and find any invasive weeds such as moth plant or um, box thorn and if we find it, we can deal to it and hopefully stay on top of it. Yeah, because I mean a lot of work, if you've read in the background pages, there's a lot of work, time, money that goes into creating a pest-free environment. So you know, you certainly want to keep it that way so you don't have to go through that process all, all over again. Okay, thanks Eliza. We're up to question eight. It's Eliza again. Has anyone ever accidentally brought a pest onto the island and what did you do about it? Hey again, Eliza. Um, yeah, so back about 20 or 30 years ago, we don't know the exact date, but when GMI was bought by the owners, they decided to start building on the island and bringing in um, certain plants to plant around their houses. And this is how we suspect that Argentine ants were brought. So the Argentine ants were supposedly in the soil of the trees that were brought by boat to the island. And then once the trees were planted, the ants thought, this is quite a nice place to live. You know, got an, got an island to themselves. And they just spread like wildfire. And back 20, 30 years ago, we didn't, didn't know anything about Argentine ants, didn't realise they were even a pest. So they spread and had a great time. Um, and now we're catching on to it, now that we're all aware about conservation and all educated on the matter. And now we're realising that half the island's uh, taken over by Argentine ants. And now, now we're starting to do uh, the Argentine ant programme, which is two blocks of six weeks. And we take about 10 or 12 volunteers out who get to go and stay on the island for a week, which is an awesome time. If you guys can try and get on that, I'd recommend it. Um, and throughout there, we grid search the island and try and find where the hotspots and where the nests of ants are. And once we've located them, then we go back on the second weeks and go with a baiting program and try and um, stay on top of the numbers and eradicate them. And this should go on for a few more years until hopefully we can get the numbers down to zero. Mm, good job. Good stuff, Eliza. Thanks very much. Um, doing really well this hour. So we'll go to question nine, please. Hi, it's Tasha. My first question is, well, how long is it predicted that there will continue to be new discoveries on Ahu Ahu? Sorry, I missed that. Sorry, for how long is it predicted that there will continue to be new discoveries on Ahu Ahu? And, and we just missed your first name too. Tasha. 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 Morana Tasha. Um, well, there will always continue to be new um, discoveries out on Ahu Ahu. Um, archaeology, we could be out there for 50 years, 100 years, and we would still just scratch the surface of 
um, what is up there in terms of um, understanding Māori um, and early European history of the island. So I don't know how much longer this um, project is going to continue between the museum and the university. We have no immediate plans to stop it. Um, in fact, it's gearing up to uh, do some more intensive work on the gardens out on the island. Um, so I think it just depends on um, how, how long the individuals want to um, want to keep going to to learn donor and the iwi are happy uh, nati hey are happy to support us being out there. Thanks, Louise. And question ten, last one this morning. Hi, it's Tasha again. Are there any plant pests on Ahuahu? And if so, what's been done about these? Morning, Tasha. Uh, yeah, so there's about 24 uh, weed species on Ahuahu currently, and they range in population and severity, I guess you'd say. But the main ones that we focus on are moth plant, foxthorn, and um, pampas. So with these ones, like I was saying, Doc will spend a few weeks a year with hopefully 10 to 12 volunteers and we'll head out to the island for a week. It's a great time again, get to spend a week on the island and we'll grid search through the forest in the southern end of the island and we'll be about two, two feet steps apart and we'll make sure that we can ID these pests and we'll go through with um, secateurs and some poison and get rid of as many as we can to try and keep on top of the numbers. And this is quite a huge effort, but it's also a great time at the same. Also, a lot of aerial spraying is done to get rid of some of the other uh, plants that are pests. And that is also another big effort that we try and keep on top of. But yeah, it's an ongoing battle. Right. Well, thanks very much, guys. Um, soon there's going to be a further opportunity for um, all schools on Zoom platform to post extra questions in the chat pod, but um, in the meantime, thanks to our, to our experts today, Louise and James, for your time, and to our speaking school, Mercury Bay Area School, for your questions this morning. You did a great job. Um, now, feel free to stay to the end, and we'll have a big roundup at the end. It's a big kākite anō. Um, you can listen to this web conference again. This will be uploaded to the web conferences page by this afternoon. And uh, while you're on the website, you can have a read of my travel diary from yesterday. So in uh, our next web conference is tomorrow at 9.15. So do join us for that as well. So that brings the formal part of our web conference to an end. And you're free to leave at any time. Um, but we will, we're going to be here, we'll be here for another up to 10 minutes before we need to get out because our checkout time is 10 o'clock. <laughs> so we're going to get going and we've got a lot to do today. But I'm going to hand it back to Barry in the office and he will take over this second part of the web conference in terms of asking questions that you've put in the chat pod. Thanks, Barry.
Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, everyone. So the Thompson Twins, uh, who are regular LEARNS users, and I think they're in Carterton today, they want to know how big the island is and maybe compare it to the size of another island that we know about. The island is about um, well, 1,784 hectares, I think. Um, comparing it to other islands, it's the second or third largest island um, in Aotearoa. Um, I can't think about how you would actually compare it to in size to to another island. Um, smaller than Stewart Island, I suppose. Yeah, smaller than Stewart Island and much smaller than um, Aotearoa Great Barrier. Yep. Cool. This isn't far away, really. Yep. Okay, okay, thanks. Actually, it's quite big. Mm. So the it's second one. Ones. Yeah. So the second one from Odette. What food do you think Captain Cook and his crew ate when they first were around Mercury Islands? And maybe they're thinking what local foods they might have eaten. Is there any evidence for it? Any ideas? Um, well, they, they had their own food with them, so they would have had ship biscuits. And um, when they were in Mercury Bay, they, they traded fish uh, every day that they were here. Um, and so they, they would have eaten a lot of fish. Um, we know that they collected some plants like um, uh, scurvy grass um, and, and the native spinach around the coastline of Mercury Bay. So they would have supplemented the food that they had with them, like the salted beef um, and the ship biscuits and, and probably a porridgey gruel type food um, with fresh food that, that they were either... Um, traded or um, that they caught themselves. Thanks. Thanks for that. <laughs> Good question. Yeah. Um, one from Monique Taylor. How does the public have an effect on the island? Um, Great Mercury Island is a really popular boating destination in summer and there's about five or six really popular white sand beaches on the southern end and it can get to hundreds of boats over the summer that potentially could be carrying uh, mice or rats on their boats that could come on shore so we got to got to watch out for that and make sure that all the rat trap lines around the beaches are working in action and that people are aware not to bring uh, certain pests alongside on their boats so they check their boats every time they go out and um a lot of the public are actually allowed on the beaches and allowed to go for walks in certain parts of the island. So we've just got to keep an eye out on the public when they come and visit in the summertime. Mm. Thanks for that. Thanks. So I've got one myself because you talked about something earlier called XRA or something. And I'm wondering if there are any new te techniques for finding artifacts and identifying them using technology or... Um, you know, scanning or whatever? Um, 
X, it's, it's actually XRF, um, which is X-ray diffraction. Um, there, there are, I guess, a number of different um, analyses that can be done on artifacts, like wooden artifacts. Um, there are one or two specialists in New Zealand that um, can look at the grain of the wood and interpret um, what species that is. Um, and so you might apply that to uh, objects that have been found in, say, swampy conditions. Uh, you might also use that for um, to identify charcoal as to what um, plant species or what tree species has been burnt in Māori fires. Um, in terms of actually how you might find artefacts by um, um, other methods, um, Fortunately, um, we don't have any methodology for doing that. And I say fortunately because um, if it was, you know, you get metal detectors in some places in the world, um, but of course Māori didn't have metal, so that's not applicable here. And that's good because um, treasure hunters would use any objects, uh, any equipment to be able to go out and actually just dig up the artefacts. Um, and artefacts only tell a really small story, part of the story about um, how people lived here in um, New Zealand in, in the past. And by digging up the artefacts and just digging up the artefacts, which we call fossicking, um, then that destroys every, everything else that's in the soil around them. Um, so, um, you know, it's, it's actually against the law to go out digging in sites without permission um, to, to protect all of that information that's in, in the ground about um, how Māori lived in the past. Is there new technology that can look through the ground and detect some differentiation and, and with, without having to dig in the first place? Uh, yes, there is, but it always has to be ground truth. And we, and we, uh, ground truth means that you actually have to dig a hole in order to interpret what the machine is um, has has got on the on the screen. So you can use um, magnetometers, uh, which look at um, um, disturbances under under the ground surface. And we have been using that out on Ahu Ahu, and uh, when we get out there and we have a look at some of the gardens, uh, I can talk more about um, what went on out there in June to actually try to find um, some evidence of um, channels and gardens um, under the ground surface uh, that we can't see it on, on the actual surface. Um, but none of these methods are foolproof. They, they, they won't give you um, a camera shot, they won't give you a photograph of what's under the ground, but it'll just show that there is disturbance and that it may be um, um, in patterns which you can interpret as being storage pits or, or um, fireplaces or something like that. But um, uh, it would take the fun out of digging as well if we knew what was under the ground um, before we could actually, without needing to dig it up. I can appreciate that. It's like watching a fishing show and thinking you're getting a day's fishing in. Yeah. 
<laughs> I'd rather go out and do it myself sustainably. Uh, okay. um, so can we have, um, we've got time for a couple more questions, I think, Barry. Yep. So um, there's quite a few here, but I'm going to choose this one. How do archaeologists, how did they first discover the objects? And how many artifacts have been found and what has been the rarest? I mean, I know some archaeology finds are famous, like the Burgess sale is, was found by accident. But in New Zealand? So is it... Is it um near the bottom from Allison in the tap. How did archaeologists first discover the objects? Yeah. And How many artifacts have been found and what was the rarest? Yeah. Or most useful or most special? Um, mm, that's a, that, that's a, a tricky one. We actually, as archaeologists, don't go out to do excavations just to dig up artifacts. Um, in many ways, the artefacts are incidental to what we're really after, which is the broader understanding of what people, Māori in this case, did on that site. Um, and if we find artefacts, then it just is another layer of information that we can do analysis on. We have found, um, having said that, we have found a lot of stone flakes on the island of obsidian and church, which were used as scraping and cutting tools. Um, we haven't found a lot of many other types of artifacts. Um, a couple of moa bone fish hooks in one of the early sites, um, a fishing lure, uh, stone fishing lure is in another site, but it's mostly um, obsidian flakes because that was the most common type of uh, tool that was used. And I think overall, and bearing in mind that we have been excavating there for eight years, we have several tens of thousands of these flakes to be analysed, uh, and then they will eventually go back to the island um, when we have finished with them. Um, so that tells us that, that um, it's, it's like a, um, a, a Stanley knife or a, a, a Swiss army knife, um, that these tools were used um, to, to scale fish, to, to scrape the bark off trees, to um, uh, strip flax, um, a whole variety of, um, of range, um, range of uses. Um, so that is why we have so many uh, of them. Thanks. Thanks, Louise. Um, hey, look, just looking at the time, we, we do have to actually go. Oh, one more, one more. Okay, yeah. Barry. Well, so. well from Alison again, um, how can owners of Ahu Ahu trust people to come onto the island? So... You know, some people want to bring their dogs, for instance, or how do they trust them, or maybe even why do they trust them? You mean just the public? Yes, because it's public Don't can go there. Um, again, it's all about that education and awareness. So a lot of the locals around here know that uh, Great Mercury Island's pest-free, and there's a lot of work put into that. 
Um, we do get a lot of Bodies from Tauranga and Auckland. A lot of Bodies talk to amongst each other. Uh, so that's always a handy one. And also we've got Andy, the ranger who lives on the island. So over summer he runs around the beaches and informs people not to let their dogs go near um, doctoral zones or anything that could be harmful. So there's a lot of awareness and education coming from um, education, basically. And a lot of Bodies know about it because it's such a popular place that everyone wants to go to, really. And I guess that's a bit of a responsibility of the owners to enable that broader education and experience. Because, you know, one thing I've learned about conservation in this case over the years doing this, this job is that people often wonder, oh, why do you allow people into these special areas if they're so unique? Um, well, if you don't, if people aren't allowed to go there, they can't experience it and then they won't get an appreciation for what's there and they're less likely to want to continue that work or help out in another area. Yeah, big time. You've got to, got to experience and then you enjoy it and then it um, spreads tenfold. You go and tell everyone about it so then everyone knows. I, I've also found that um, working there over a number of years that and talking to the boaties, um, that some of them have been coming out there for well over 20 years. They are really protective of the island because it's, um, to them, it's a really special place that they want to keep going, spreading the word as well, and they're quite protective um, of the island, which is a great thing. Um, and, and so they're making sure that new people go out there um, and, and know the rules because uh, it could affect them all if... Um, if there's any incursion of pests onto the island. We just lost contact, but we're back. But that's it, guys. Thanks so much for being a part of this morning's web conference and sticking around to the end. Uh, join us again, like I said, tomorrow at 9.15 for our next one. And tomorrow you'll see the first of our videos online for viewing as well. Barry's going to unmute you all now to say a big fano kakite. Hi. Bye. 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 Bye.